Hello. This is Graphic Policy Radio. Hello, this is Graphic Policy Radio. Uh, We are going to be talking about the Venture Brothers cartoon, Season 6, Episode 3. Today, I am Ilana Brooklyn, or Ilana Levin, and I am joined by my regular Venture Brothers co-host, Stephen Adewell. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Um, So for folks who don't know, uh, we are doing an episode-by-episode podcast about the Venture Brothers cartoon on Adult Swim, um, this episode is going to be really focused on season six, episode three, which is called Faking Miracles. Um, Stephen, do you want to set up the recap of the episode? Sure. So uh, the episode starts out with the monarch having found out that his father was, in fact, the superhero, the Blue Morpho. <laughs> but can, yeah, but before he can do anything about this new state of affairs, he has to go to a no costume party that Wide Whale is throwing for his daughter, Serena Siren. Unfortunately for him, he runs afoul of Copycat, an evil multiple man-esque villain who impersonates him to damage his reputation with the guild and drive a wedge between the monarch and Dr. Mrs. the monarch, who finally has had enough of the monarch's ongoing struggle with his wife having a more successful career. Mm-hmm. Uh, over at Venture Industries, uh, Beat, uh, excuse me, Pete, Billy, and Rusty are going through J.J.'s project more to look for something to launch their super science division because Rusty's feeling rusty. On the other hand, Billy thinks that they should be developing their own ideas rather than relying on J.J.'s. In the process, the trio accidentally drop a vial of experimental biobots that escape into the Ventec Tower pipes and into Dean, who's got enough, about, uh, got enough to worry about applying for college and taking the SATs without having to worry about the dreaded Kendiru fish and a trio of jackasses playing video games with his insides, leading to a comedy of errors wherein he loses his lunch, gains super strength, has a heart attack, is self-revived, revived, learns Babylonian, and then gets tranked. But hey, no one said that getting into Stuyvesant University would be easy. Oh, man. Meanwhile, uh, Hank takes up a job as a pizza delivery boy, where his first assignment is to deliver a pizza to the Wide Whale's apartment, where he meets cute with Serena, with whom he had an encounter at the Central Park Reservoir jogging path. Despite having to run from the overprotective whale-life bodyguards, Hank and Serena seem to hit it off, and the two decide to start dating, despite their father's arching situation. So, initial impressions. Alana, what did you think of this episode? It was a really fun episode. Um, I think we're starting to see certain themes for the season develop, and I really enjoy the specific stories that are telling over each one of the guys. Um, and I laughed a great deal. What about you? Uh, I also really liked the episode. Um, I felt like, and this is something I felt, you know, in, in previous episodes this season, there's always like a plot line or two that seems to not quite have enough time. Like that it could have used another couple of minutes to just do a little bit more development. Uh, but, you know, the I mean, part of my love of the show is what they do with continuity. And this show had so much amazing continuity stuff going on that I really didn't mind uh, about any of the, you know, the quibbles that I had. Yeah. Uh Well, maybe we'll hit some of those as we go and talk about the references within this episode. Yes, which uh, this week had (laughs) 
I was very thankful. It had more to do with comic books and less to do with 80s music. Um, <laughs> so uh, we start off with uh, a sort of a flashback sequence uh, where uh, the villain Scaramantula is holding uh, Jonas Venture and the team Ven- original Team Venture hostage. Uh, Scaramantula is a play on uh, Scaramanga, who was uh, James Bond's nemesis, the man with the golden gun. Uh, appropriately, you know, we have uh, Colonel Gentleman on hand to insult Italian engineering, since Colonel Gentleman is kind of partly based on Alan Quartermain, and James Bond is played by Sean Connery, who also played Alan Quartermain in the horrible League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie. Which shall never be mentioned again. Although I would say that people should totally read the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic series by Alan Moore because it is excellent. Um, and for those who are American and have not, who are either American or have not read Extraordinary, Extraordinary Gentlemen, Alan Quartermain was a pulp hero. Um, he was really one of the big successful ones in like 1880s. Uh, and was a model for a lot of the superheroes that we have come to read and love today. Yeah, especially sort of pulp heroes in the vein of like um, Doc Savage Mm -hmm. or Indiana Jones, the sort of, you know, uh, heroic adventurer types. Yeah, like white dudes who show up in other countries and act like they know it all. Um, Yeah, in in literally coining the term deepest, darkest Africa. (laughs) Um, yeah. uh, and also along for the ride is the Action Man. Uh, do you want to take this one? Sure. Um, you know, this is these are both characters who have been in the show for a long time, but we haven't been doing the podcast till now. So this seems as good an opportunity as ever to remind everyone of the origins of the Action Man. Um, in an episode in season one, I believe, um, there is a whole riff on the David Bowie song Space Oddity with the whole ground control to Major Tom. Uh, where we have the astronaut launching into space and realizing he'll never see uh, Earth again. And one of and Bowie had written a song that followed up on a number of the themes from Space Oddity that came out in the um, the song Ashes to Ashes, which was on the album Scary Monsters, came out in the mid '80s. Uh, and in that song, uh, Ashes to Ashes, which you, was a very popular song in terms of, you know, did well on the charts and the music video is really noteworthy. It's the one where he's dressed up like a Pravo mime guy with a pointy hat. Um, there's lyrics, do you remember a guy that's been in such an early song? I've heard a rumor from Ground Control. Oh, no, don't say it's true. I've got a message from the action man. I'm happy. Hope you're happy, too. I've loved and I've loved, love, sordid details following. Now, here's the thing. The way that is structured, I understand why you would think that the action man is a different person who's having a conversation perhaps with Major Tom, but the action, right. the action man is Major Tom. So in the cartoon, Major Tom is the astronaut, and he's like having an argument. Well, he's not having an argument. He's having an exchange with the action man back on Earth. You know, tell my wife I love her very much, and then the action man says she knows. They're actually the same yeah. character in Bowie's Higgy, in, within Bowie's world. But regardless... It did give right. us the character called the Action Man. And you just told me something new about the Action Man, which I yes, did not which know. which is that Action Man is the UK's officially licensed version of G.I. Joe, um, which makes sense because the Action Man's main uh, gimmick uh, within the Venture Brothers universe is that he shoots everyone while screaming, action, action, action. So Action Man was probably a toy <laughs> that David Bowie 
uh, grew up with as a kid and was referring to uh, in his song lyrics. Uh, and it's also, you know, the, the meta stuff gets even weirder because in Venture Brothers continuity, uh, Major Tom's wife uh, basically remarries the action man. Yes. Um, but so that it was, gets, yeah. gets very confusing. And now the action man is dating Billy's mom. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, so, uh, holy so shit. At the moment, yeah, so at the moment that there are, uh, that Team Venture is tied to a, a giant spider web and being menaced with uh, arachnobots, uh, all of a sudden uh, we learn that, holy shit, the monarch's dead was actually the Blue Morpho, which is the Venture Brothers equivalent of the Green Hornet, or slash Batman, complete with snazzy color-coordinated costume, fancy guns, fancy car, and a Cato-like chauffeur. Um, And according to uh, some promotional photos, he was something of a rebel within the superhero world, in that he shot villains dead. He didn't play the whole OSI, Guild of Calamitous Intent game, Um, which, you know, kind of makes ex- helps to explain why Jonas Venture and the Blue Morpho don't initially get along. Uh, I'd, I'd also point out it's kind of impressive the way that he uh, basically crashes the car through uh, a window, given that they're on Spider Skull Island. So <laughs> somehow uh, this car managed to crash. Basically, either it's a flying car or somehow it managed to uh, do a sweet jump from the mainland. So either way, it's cool. Um, you had pointed out, which I really like, actually, that the Blue Morpho's voice actor is Paul F. Tompkins, and Paul F. Tompkins mm-hmm. is awesome, and people should listen to his podcasts. Yeah. Um, so uh, we we learned that, uh, well, you know, from the, the comic book that, of course, Henchman 21 uh, has, that Jonas Venture and the Blue Morpho clearly become close friends, which is why we see in last season the photo of their two families picnicking together, uh, even though you know the the monarch clearly does not remember that he knew his nemesis from childhood, and we learned that they fought uh, L. Ron Hubbard or L. Ron H. Ron, uh, as he is known in the Venture Brothers universe, which took place uh, during the episode Spanakopita, uh, where Rusty was basically kidnapped uh, by a bunch of Greek islanders uh, while his dad was busy fighting L. Ron Hubbard. And I would also mention that, you know, the whole uh, trope of two good guys meeting, fighting, and then becoming friends is like one of the oldest tropes in the entire superhero universe. Like, any any two given heroes, the first time they met, they fought, and then they became allies and they beat up the bad guy. So I'm glad that's consistent here, too. Right. So, speaking of comic book tropes, it turns out that the Blue Morpho had a comic book, uh, which was done by the one, the only, Jack King Kirby, which only lasted six issues, apparently. Not some <laughs> of his best work. Now, Ilana, here's yeah. the surprise that I've been holding mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. Jack Kirby did draw Green Hornet comics in the 40s. Ooh. He was working for Harvey Comics. It was, you know, in addition to working for a bunch of other comics, because everyone freelanced even then. And one of the people that he was often paired with at Harvey Comics was Joe Simon, who he would later partner up up with up with, to yeah. create Captain America. Mm-hmm. 
So I love it that, you know, they are draw they I mean this really shows that, you know, they've got some serious nerd cred. Uh well, even they, though yeah. uh according to you, uh mm-hmm. they didn't read classic comic books when they were kids. No, I, when I interviewed uh J- uh Doc Hammer and Jackson Public at Comic-Con this year, I was sort of asked like which of the classic, you know, like silver age artists they were most inspired by because they have a lot of that aesthetic in the art of this cartoon, frankly. And interestingly, they both said that they just did not read Silver Age comics growing up. It didn't appeal to them at all. I think um, uh, Jack Hammer made a joke about how I think a comic book once, and he was just like, why would you give me this? This makes no sense, which is a legitimate response. Um, (laughs) uh, So it's sort of definitely something that they picked up later. Maybe even in art school. I didn't actually say specifically. Um, but I, for those of you who don't really know comics too well listening to the podcast, Jack Kirby is the most important comic book artist of all time. Um, he, Cohen, he co-created basically every character that is Marvel character that you've heard of. And, um, yeah, so that's why he's a big deal. And then did a whole bunch of amazingly uh, trippy DC stuff in the 60s, Which is the best too. shit ever, but if you don't know who Jack Kirby is, you've never seen it before, which is why I didn't mention right. it. Um, uh, anything else on nope. Kirby? Nope. Okay. So, moving on, uh, we then go to the Central Park Reservoir, uh, where joggers go to be seen in New York City. Uh, and sadly, Hank's awkward, creepy attempt at hitting on Serena is not uncommon at the Central Park Reservoir. Uh, one of the nice little sort of background details that I noticed is that there's a whole bunch of monarch butterflies uh, flittering around in the background, despite the fact that you don't really get monarch butterflies in New York. No, that's not true. I mean, I, you know, anywhere you have milkweed, they'll show up. And I, we, we've been planting milkweed in, around my building and getting some stuff here. Okay, but like, like you know, not They like reservoirs, numbers, too. Right? right, milkweed grows in reservoirs. It's a marshy oh, plant. okay. I stand corrected. It's not completely random. Okay. Um, And here I was thinking that it was just a kind of a neat visual uh, sort of way to keep the monarch in the story. Mm, Uh, I like that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, One of the figures that the Ventures um, run across uh, on the jogging path is a rather dumpy-looking homeless superhero wearing a a tinfoil hat, which you think is freakazoid, right? Yeah, his shirt looks like Freakazoid's. Um, Freakazoid was a cartoon that um, Paul Dini and, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking, um, had made in the 90s. It was like a really zany, surrealist, madcap cartoon. It also kind of looks like um, one of the comics that uh, Mike Alred used to do. Like, Oh, Mad uh, Men. Mad Men. Mad Men, yeah. I actually was Googling that and didn't find anything. Uh, but look at like the logo from him as well, at least sort of the design. Um, I don't know. Uh, he does have a tinfoil hat, which I thought like it looks a little bit like maybe a bullet man hat, but I don't really see a real connection there. Uh, you know, but I, I mean, it might also just be the fact that, you know, they're, they're kind of throwing together the superhero references and the fact that, you know, New York city has hmm. a fair share of crazy homeless people. Um, so uh, another, like, this is one of the more off, like, you know, off the beaten track references that they throw in. 
don't harpoon tase me, bro. When when Hank gets uh-huh. zapped by uh, Serena's bodyguards, it's like, really, of all things, you're going to go with that one, you know, that one uh, frat bro from John Kerry's campaign yeah. visit in, like, 2004. That is, that's a weird reference. Yeah, but that definitely is what Hank said. I'm sorry, what, what, uh, what Hank said, yes. Yeah. Um, I didn't notice if there was any reference about, like, why exactly uh, Dean was wearing brown loafers to go jogging, um, but that was kind of crazy. I think it's because he's just that specific flavor of square. Yeah. Uh, just does not, you know, one of those people who just does not own sneakers. Yeah. Uh, so we then go to uh, a meeting of the Council of Thirteen as they are bringing on uh, new staff. Uh, Professor Phage, uh, who they mention is the guy from, uh, you saw him in the first episode of, of this season, the guy who's got mechanical spider legs and a giant crystal, uh, pink crystal on his head who's supposed to resemble a virus. Or a virophage, I believe is the, uh, what yeah. the origin of the name would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so while they're uh, talking about, uh, you know, who to who to bring back on the Council of Thirteen? They mention the fact that Vendata, uh, the cyborg who used to be on the uh, Council of Thirteen, has gone missing. Now, uh, if you watched last season, you may know that uh, first of all, uh, Brock killed him uh, and <laughs> stole his costume. Uh, but there are many signs that Vendata was the monarch's RoboCop father uh that you know his he his father died in a plane crash in the pine baron um and jonas venture senior turned him into a cyborg um so you know there's in terms of stuff we'll talk about later in the episode when we get to themes there's definitely some interesting stuff about family vendettas going on yeah i mean i it's interesting though that like if they're friends with but it, you know, like I guess the RoboCop went wrong and became a villain or something. I, it's certainly unclear how he became a bad guy at that point. Yeah, well, I mean, they mentioned very briefly, like literally, you have to do a freeze frame and look at a computer screen in, in the episode that like he lost his memory at some point. Hmm. Um, you know, so there's all kinds of like fan theories floating around about like so because the Bumorpho was violating the, the sort of superhero rules and killing uh, costumed antagonists, did the, the Guild of Calamitous Intent set up the plane crash that, you know, supposedly killed him and his, and his, uh, oh. his wife? And, of course, that would make, you know, his death or his, his sort of second life as a member of the Guild's High Council kind of incredibly ironic, but also kind of mean that you know, to the extent that the monarch ever finds out the truth, there's this really complicated sort of relationship between the guild and OSI going on. And, and there already was and has been, you know, so. Yeah, it just, it makes it so much more personal for the monarch himself. Yeah. So, uh, tell me about Don Hells. Oh, yes. Yeah. So there's a throwaway joke where they're saying they haven't seen Vendata since he left Don Hells. Um, Don Hell is a riff off of Don Hills. Don Hills was a club down in the Meatpacking District before the Meatpacking District was the Meatpacking District. 
um, that I used to go to. It was like the nine, you know, I don't know how old it was, but it certainly was around in the nineties, um, probably closed around 2000, I'm guessing. And it was like a punk club and they would go and see shows there. I saw lots of really good underground bands play there. It was like really culturally significant. And like knowing that the creative team here on the show had certainly been to plenty of shows there, possibly the same yeah, and, that I was at. And also Don Hell is in Venture Brothers universe, uh, a member of the guild of Calamitous Intent who runs a super villain nightclub. Well, does he have um, like kind of like long whitish hair? Because oh yeah, he, he does. does. He does. So Don indeed. Hill. So Don Hill is Don. Hi- Don Hell is Don Hill, the actual Probably. person. Probably. Who was an actual um, person? Right. Uh, so uh, other references going on this episode. There are a lot of kind of omnipresent Godfather references mm-hmm. uh, because you know the Wide Whale is is kind of playing off of. Um, uh, Christ, why can't I remember his name? Uh, played Don Corleone. Oh, oh, sorry, uh, Marlon Brando. Yeah, Marlon Brando. I mean, especially Marlon Brando's, uh, you know, unfortunate weight gain in his later years. Um, but also, also, you know, it's the cliche trope of the overprotective mobster dad not dealing well with his daughter's uh, burgeoning maturity. Except that this, you know, this time instead of on the day of his granddaughter's wedding, it's his daughter's 18th birthday. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I was waiting for someone to make a joke about bringing in the cannoli, you know? Yeah. Leave the shotguns, bring the cannoli. And I'm yeah. actually a little bit sad that they didn't do it. Yeah, that that was sort of, that's one of those things where I was like, hmm, that plot could have maybe done a little bit more. Um, so other references. Uh, over in Ventec Towers, uh, one of the sort of the big uh, references is uh, the power loader from Alien. Uh, shows up in 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 uh, the Ventex uh, offices, and Billy and Pete are just fucking around with it and having fun. Yeah, I I think it probably is the actual the actual one. Well, did the actual one have a rocket launcher? Feels like they got some venture up. Sure. Upgrades. I'm not really knowledgeable um, about Alien. Yeah, so you know. Uh, Billy, as is his want, wants a high five, uh, whereas Pete sings uh, We Are the Robots, which, tell us more about that. So that's the only, like, real music reference uh, I have in this episode. Um, He, like, literally, like, sings and mimes We Are the Robots, which is a song by Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk basically invented electronic music as we know it. Um, They formed in, like, 1970. They're, that, that, that is probably one of the songs by them that you know you won't know anything um but yeah I, like, I mostly know the Kraftwerk parodies that saturday night live used to do back when mike myers was on the show exactly yeah so if you think of like a synthesizer based electronic music band very artsy um Definitely a band that Mr. White would be a huge fan of, like, without a doubt. Um, so speaking of things that are in uh, J.J.'s Project Morgue, uh, they mention a subterranean submarine. And I'm wondering if, like, one of the kind of connecting threads here is that the amazing uh, blue whale submarine that the wide whale used to infiltrate uh, Venture uh, Ventec Towers uh, last episode, yeah, um, 
is uh, JJ's creation because that would maybe give another connection. But the other thing that comes up is the biobots, which very closely resemble the black symbiote suit that Peter Parker was infected with uh, during uh, Secret Wars. Yes. Um, and, you know, this would be very appropriate because, you know, as we saw with the, the first episode of the season, Dean is kind of falling into a sort of Spider-Man-ish orbit. Yeah, Dean really is, he is Spider-Man. Like, he has the same sort of, like, nerd, smart, sensitive guy thing going on. Um, you know, he, he probably won't have Spider-Man's, like, financial problems that plague him. Um, but hopefully he'll have the same luck with the ladies. Um <laughs> So you'd say that the shot of the nanobots escaping reminded you of the thing. Yeah, and I, I, I wish I'd had the time to actually watch the movie again to verify this, but you get these sort of uh, shots where the, the, the camera, as it were, is tracking the silvery biomass as it goes like across the room and down into the grate. And I just I feel like I've seen the sucker thing in the thing do that. Ah, well, unfortunately for Dean, uh, the biobots uh, enter his body via the urethra, which leads to a callback to the dreaded Kendiru. I'm not a little fish with a penchant for swimming up a man's urethra to feed <laughs> on the damaged tissue of the pitiful mass of flesh you once called your penis. Uh, which is a classic uh, monarch uh, rant from uh, the episode, Are You There, God? It's me, Dean, from season one. Yes. Which uh, is my one of my all-time favorite episodes of the show. Yeah, it's also how I, I mean, it's an amazing episode and also how I know that Candy Roo exists. I feel really bad for Dean because there's like so many less painful ways that the nanobots could have invaded his body. Like, oh, yeah, God. Cer- yeah, certainly, uh, you know, Spider-Man did not have to put up with that level of uh, physical violation. No, um, exactly. Oh, God, I really feel bad for Dean. Like, this, like, he just, this kind of, he's just, like, subject to horrible bodily abuse, like, regularly to the point where, if you think about it, like, when he goes to say, to tell, like, Brock something's wrong, he just sort of gives up halfway through trying to explain it. He's like, you yeah, know what? Uh, Something traumatic happened to my body yet again, and I'm not going to bother trying to explain what it is. Help me study. Right. And that's depressing. Um, like, really depressing. Yeah, it is. Um, so... Speaking of Dean and Brock, uh, we get this extended sequence where uh, Brock is trying to figure out what's wrong with Dean that is basically a ripoff, or not a ripoff, it's an homage to The yes. Exorcist, right? Mm-hmm. You've got vomiting, you've got super strength, you've got talking in a strange uh, ancient Middle Eastern language. You know, the only thing it was really lacking was sort of strange sexual fixations, an old priest and a young priest. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was a very strong parallel though, and I, and I really enjoyed the scene of having, you know, the scientists in the lab talking about the various things they could do to somebody, completely unaware of the fact that these were the things they were actually doing to someone. And what's yeah, interesting and- too is the whole idea that, you know, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, sort of a right. parallel there. Uh, and I also have to say that, you know, um, you know, speaking of of uh, the guys. Uh, in the basement, fucking around with Dean's body. 
Uh, not in that way. Um, uh-huh. Is that they seem to be using a Super NES controller as their main interface. Good point. Good point. I guess uh, that's not normal with, for most science. Yeah. Um, so the other, uh, the new super v- character that we meet this episode is Copycat, who seems to be a weird mixture of Dean Martin and the Multiple Man with just a touch of West Side Story. Yeah. Uh, for, for those who don't know, Multiple Man is totally one of the best X-Men characters ever. He's primarily on X-Factors. His name is Jamie Madrox. Um, and, and his, his early superhero career seemed to be mostly him getting knocked unconscious. That was his early career, but his later career included being a hard-boiled detective and accidentally <laughs> getting Siren knocked up with a smaller duplicate of himself, which was reabsorbed into his body through the most traumatic means possible. So hard, it's a hard situation. It's a hard life. <laughs> It's um, a hard no, life I, for a multiple man. No, seriously, though, guys, like, go read Peter David's run on X Factor with multiple man in it. It's wonderful. It's so good. Please read it. You will be so happy you did. Um, but basically, he has the power to duplicate himself. And in the comics, when multiple man duplicates himself, he just sort of, like, if he, you know, he, he, if he, like, hits his hand or, like, he would, he would use some sort of soft percussive force on his body and a dupe would spontaneously appear. But copycat snaps his fingers, and then there's, like, champagne bubbles that bubble up, and another yeah. guy appears. So it's definitely, so is, I feel like, yeah, Jamie Madrox, the multiple man, would be jealous of how cool yeah. uh, copycats do processes. He certainly had a, a 60s sort of lounge lizard thing going on. He's very, um, he's he totally Dean Martin, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, he was kind of one of those, like, instant, like, douche characters. It's like, oh, God, I can't stand him already. Mm-hmm. Well, especially because uh, so we first see him hitting on Dr. Mrs. the Monarch in, like, a really unsavory way. I, oh, I do yeah. think this character is going to be popular because he's going to be easy to cosplay. That is true. In fact, uh, you know, I did um, I did initially for, like, five seconds think, like, his name's Copycat. Is this the Sovereign? But no. Um Oh, that's interesting. But the other thing is, yeah. in terms of the name being a copycat specifically, is I think it's sort of a reference to Dean Martin being a cool cat. And cat just sort of right. being like the kind of term that a loungy, loungy sort of guy of that period would use. So, you know, in this episode, he seems to be working either for or with Clyde Whale, uh, who also happens to be his neighbor to fuck with the monarch. Uh, and he's he is one of the applicants for a position in the Guild of, uh, uh, excuse me, on the Council of Thirteen. So, mm. you know, I think this is going to be a recurring character with a little bit more importance than just sort of a, a villain of the week. And he plays it well. Like, he he is effective, you know? Like, what he pulled off works on numerous levels. And I, I actually feel like the uh, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch and... And Doctor and, and and the monarch are are in a rough place right now as a result of what he pulled amongst other factors. Yeah. Um, so other stuff, uh, and we're kind of starting to run to the end of our references here. Uh, we find out that the white whales guards are dressed in whale lice costumes, which is gross. <laughs> yeah, because it means well, technically, I mean. If they're his minions, it means they're sort of living off of his body, so to speak. I suppose that's the metaphor they were going for. Yeah, I mean, you know, that does work. It's just gross. gross. Um, mm-hmm. So what is the deal with the butler? Like, I feel he's a reference, but I couldn't quite place him. Me I was thinking maybe it's like a reference to um, 
uh, oh, uh, Mr. Kobayashi in The Usual Suspects, but I wasn't positive. Why would that be? Just because he's a butler and he's wearing the same uh, collar that um, Pete Postlethwaite was wearing in that movie. I don't even remember that. I mean, in terms of what happened to his body, I thought maybe he was like a barnacle or something. Okay, I could see that. It's just like it's it's definitely that's his character shtick is that he's got some weird face thing that freaks people out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and you know, hey, whatever else we can say about Wild Wide Whale, he's a horrible human being. But you know, at least he, um, you know, is very uh, pro disabled rights and you know <laughs> stands up to his but uh, for his butler as you know needing to be proud of who he is. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's talk about uh, Serena who. Uh, we get to know a lot more of this episode. Um, you know, she's got gills. She can breathe underwater. I'm kind we of getting see, but we like... don't see her gills normally. That's the thing. I kept checking her for gills, and I did not see them. Yeah, I mean, we only saw it when she was doing the dead woman's float in the pool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the first episode, uh, and I'm kind of getting like a Namorita slash Aqua Girl vibe if they mm-hmm. grew up on Long Island. <laughs> Because uh, she does have a very uh, expressive voice. She does. It's adorable. Yeah, Namorita is, um, God, I don't know. She's not Namor's daughter, but that's preposterous. But Namor should probably have, like, hundreds of children at this point. Um, Isn't she his sister? Yeah. Cousin? Something like that? Cousin, younger cousin or something. Just something that I don't know. Uh, anyway, so um, the pizza place where Hank now works. Uh, I think it's like Lombardi's. Her. Yeah. Uh, I also noticed that it was a pizza grill and seafood place, uh, mm-hmm. which makes sense for the wide whale. It's keeping in theme. Yeah, it was a venue we've seen before as well. Yeah. Um, I, initially, like the first, the moment that they pulled to that shot, I was like, are we going back to the Italian tailor? But uh, they're definitely doing like a strong uh, mafia uh, vibe uh, so far this season. Yeah, they are. Um, also, the famous pizza, like the best pie to get at, at Lombardi's, is the one with clams on it. So, um, that makes sense then. Um, so, yeah, the golden giant golden hand outside Wide Whale's building. Yeah, there's a statue that's like very similar to that outside of that huge ugly ass Trump building on on um on uh, Columbus Circle, which is where this is all happening. And, you know, there's also the, I mean, the golden statue of uh, Columbus as well. Oh, but actually speaking of Columbus Circle and Trump and things that are ugly, we do see Trump at the party when the monarch enters. Yes, I miss this. Oh, yes, when the monarch enters the room, like in his inappropriate costume, you see Donald fucking Trump. Yeah, which is funny because, you know, in season one, uh, when the monarch was talking about his goals, in, you know, as an archer or as, as one who arches, uh, <laughs> he mentions that, you know, Republicans want to take over the world. He's in, as you said, arching for arches' sake. Yes. Um, so, you know, it doesn't surprise me that Donald Trump is a supervillain because, well, he's a supervillain. He is, yes. Um, so... The next sequence, you know, with with Hank and Serena, uh, I was definitely getting, like, there's a strong Aladdin vibe going on with the the bodyguards being like the the palace guards. 
who were chasing Aladdin around. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought maybe that Serena's dress in the scene was kind of reminiscent of um, in Superman the movie. The old school uh, the, one, like with Christopher Yeah, the, one, the, the Donner film um, uh, where Margot Kidder and uh, Superman have their, like, interview slash date, and she's, like, wearing this very kind of gauzy white dress. I think that was a collared dress, but I might not be remembering it properly. Hmm. Hold on. Margot Kidder, Superman. I mean, her uh, dress is definitely, like, very appropriate for, like, what someone, like, her would be wearing, you know, to this party. I generally think, actually, I should just say as a general shout out, I think that the show does a great job of putting people in clothes that they would wear. Uh, and as someone who reads a lot of comics, I think that frequently artists don't do that. So I think that keeping costuming in character, not just in character, but like having costuming that really is perfect for the characters and really indicates a lot of thought. Uh, and also just generally awareness of fashion and things like that is definitely something that the the Venture Brothers cartoon nails every time. Yeah. Um, So, uh, moving on, uh, uh, you noticed uh, that, you know, Brock is is, uh, surprisingly uh, high culture this episode. Not only does he know the difference between Babylonian and Sumerian just by listening to it, uh, but he also uh, knocks out a pretty good uh, Sylvia Plath reference. In regards yep. to Dean's college essay, I mean, it's saying that I think that one of the things that makes Brock such work as such an interesting character is like he's this giant, hyper competent, strong man, and he's smart. He's not the same kind of smart as these other characters. He's actually more practical smart, but he's like reasonably educated and very worldly. So I think that's one of the reasons why he works. But yeah, uh, he's turn down then, the gas a notch, Sylvia Plath, when yeah. Uh, He's reading his um, college entrance essay. And, and that fits because, you know, I mean, within the genre of, of college essays, the, you know, depressing childhood anecdote is pretty, you know, popular. Oh, really? That's not my route. I was, I talked about Dr. Strangelove and Oscar Wilde a lot. Oh, definitely. But, you know, because I mean, I've, because I've always been in character, so. Sure. You know, it's just like, you know, Overcoming childhood obstacles is like a big thing. Um, so finally, um, uh, we have the floating vehicle wheel thing, which you think is from Men in Black Three. Mm-hmm, I do. Um, I I don't know. I think it, it's sort of like I'm getting more of a vibe of the like hover bikes that that Dean and Hank used to ride before uh, they got they blowed got, up. Uh, before they got shot down. At the end of Easy Rider, I mean, at the end of season one, in like the greatest yeah. reference of all time. Um, I, yeah, but like the structure of them is like those weird wheel things that the people are riding in Men in Black 3. Mm. Um, and then finally, uh, Serena is watching a show on TV where uh, there's like a Jerry Lewis type mad scientist making mm-hmm. a woman's body invisible. Which apparently is a parody of an old uh, B movie called the girl, the Ghost in the Invisible Bikini. Which <laughs> well, the bikini is the if, if only the bikini was invisible. Alas, it is the girl and not the bikini that is invisible. Yeah. Um, so I'm, you know, I don't know what that says about uh, Serena. Um, although it's kind of you know interesting that like Dean's previous well, the closest thing that he had to a girlfriend uh, was someone who was very much into the kind of retro hipster. 
kind of scene, and mm-hmm. now Hank seems to be falling for someone who may have similar tastes. It's an interesting point. I think those are also just sort of the tastes of the show. So those are the things that the show would have people watching or liking. Yeah, that's true. Um, although, Did we no, talk about I, Romeo and that... we talked about Romeo and Sorry. Juliet references, right? Yeah, like you know, coming they're... off the balcony. Two... Yeah. Yeah, you know, two households, both alike in super villainy. Um, you know, in fair New York, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and Serena seems to be largely like, well, not largely, but like part of the reason that she seems into Hank is that he's going to piss off her dad because he belongs, you know, he's, he's Dr. Venture's kid. Yeah. Uh, so with that, we're done with the references. We're going to move mm-hmm. on to some themes. There's some really interesting stuff this episode. Um, so let's start with the, I, you know, the sort of, the show's ongoing exploration of the business of super uh, villainy and superheroism, or as I put it, there's no business like super business. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, while we don't get a lot of reaction from the monarch about the news that his dad used to play for the other team, as it were, he does seem to treat the word superhero as a slur, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, he winces. He uh, like, doesn't want him to say it. Yeah, although at the same time, I did think it was interesting that, like, when he sort of moves on from uh, denial, uh, he does kind of want to know if his dad's comic book, if his dad had a comic book. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the you know, another thing that I really like that Henchman 21 points out is that millionaire playboy is the most common secret identity. Uh, you know, the Green Hornet, the Shadow... Batman, Green Arrow, Iron Man. There's a long tradition of rich guys acting like douchebags in public so that they can beat up people in private. Yeah. If only it was really like that. It's just both of them acting like douchebags in public and also acting like douchebags in private. Right. Um, And, you know, certainly when we see the the Blue Morpho in action, uh, in addition to shooting Scaramantula, he also, you know, uh, downs a glass of wine with, uh, you know, some practice. He's 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 been around the block uh, before. So uh, Kirby, how about that? Yeah, I, it's interesting to have. Like, there's been so many references to Jack Kirby's art and characters throughout the whole series. Like, you know, the Grand Inquisitor, that seventy foot alien that we had in season one. That ignore me. That's completely a Jack Kirby character design. Uh, straight out of the textbook. So there's been tons of stuff referencing his art throughout the whole series, but I don't think anybody's actually said the name Jack Kirby on the show until this episode. Uh, and there's yeah, always the question well, of like, which things are real in our world and not in their, and, and which things that are fictional in our world are real in their world versus which things are fictional in both worlds. There's always a right. question that these sort of reference heavy shows find themselves hitting up against. Yeah. So, you know, we have seen in the past, um, you know, uh, Henshin 21 owned uh, the, fir- the first Spider-Man comic, uh, what's it called, Amazing Fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's a Ditko comic, so we know that Steve Ditko apparently exists in um, in the Venture Brothers universe. And, you know, now we know that, like, Kirby did as well. And so, like, part of what I was wondering is, you know, in the Venture Brothers universe, are comic books nonfiction? 
Yeah, because it's, well, you know, in the Marvel Universe, generally speaking, comics within the Marvel Universe are considered to be like historical fiction is sort of how they're rendered in most cases. They're sort of treated as if they're like, by most writers, is like, you know, Fantastic Four comics exist within the Fantastic Four comics, but they're sort of treated as being not nonfiction, but more like sensationalization of their exploits. Right. And I, I actually write about this in this week's uh, edition of People's History of the Marvel Universe. Which you can find um, at graphicpolicy.com. Yes, uh, tomorrow at noon. Uh, so, you know, the interesting thing, uh, you know, kind of also uh, kind of coming up in this episode is, that, like, this idea of guild restrictions and what happens when you kind of cross these cultural barriers. So the guild apparently has very strict rules about no costume parties. Uh, and, you know, the monarch seems to be kind of constantly falling into this Position is kind of like a rogue agent. You know, he doesn't play by the rules. I have seen costume parties. This, this, the issue is that this was Wide Whale's legitimate business, like legitimate above the board business party. But we've seen other supervillain parties where they wore costumes. Yeah, um, but you know, this this Sorry, seems to anyway. be like they've got they've got their private parties and their yes. public parties, and never yes. the queen shall meet. Indeed. Um, and, you know, that made me kind of think, like, given that we know from that promotional photo that his father didn't play by the rules, I wonder if, you know, and the monarch is already talking about repainting the car and getting it fixed up. Are we going to see the monarch in 21 stepping into the shoes of the Blue Morpho and Kano? <gasps> you mean going around and shooting bad guys? And in this case, they'd be shooting them because they want to replace them in the hierarchy of the guild. Well, or, like, revenge for them killing his dad and mom. So, you know, that would be a really interesting kind of uh, departure for the monarch. He, if he, he doesn't sudden... like his dad. I mean, he had dismissed his dad as being some drunk guy who, like... Yeah, but he didn't know better. And certainly, if he found out that the, the plane crash that, like, scarred his life mm. was caused by the Guild of Calamitous Intent, like, I think that might have a pretty, uh, you know... Uh, traumatic effect on him, and you know certainly he doesn't. He's not happy within the guild at the moment. Yeah, that's interesting. So I don't know how much of a, I don't know how much of a push he would need. Uh, so the other, the second theme that I wanted to talk about this episode is sexuality and maturity, uh, which is obviously kind of an ongoing topic for Hank and Dean, because for the longest time, you know, they were their clone status sort of froze them as, like, perpetual prepubescents, um, you know, uh, who, you know, thought of girls only as icky and who were sort of stuck in in sort of uh, Hardy Boys kind of era. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, now that that sort of training wheels have been taken off, has started to develop, uh, you know, more of a post-pubescent teenage identity. Yeah. No, I, I uh, think we're going to probably end up with a love interest for both of the characters. I mean, obviously we already have one, but I think that we'll probably have one uh, at, at Stuyvesant College soon. Yeah, and, you know, we've we've seen, like, in previous episodes, right, Hank lost his virginity to um, Dermot's mom. Slash someone who Doc had had sex with years ago. Yeah. Um, because and, it could uh, ever happen to anyone. <laughs> Right. And Dean, I'm not sure if he actually lost his virginity, but he 
definitely hooked up with um, the uh, the twins. No, 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 no. Like oh. they they basically sexually assaulted him, but right. never got that far. Yeah, uh, I was thinking the episode that. where um, Rusty uh, brings in a whole bunch of college interns to uh, help finish the force field, and they mutate. Yeah. Uh, the female leader of them gets oh, very right. interested in Dean and, uh, you know, makes her feelings known uh, very clearly and bluntly by just constantly putting her hands on his dick any time that they're together, which, yes. you know, kind okay. of a signal. I remember um, that now. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in this episode, um, you know, Hank seems to have uh, a maturing interest in women. Uh, thankfully, this this love interest is more his own age, so it's less creepy and a little bit more, you know, uh, potentially a viable relationship. Yeah. Uh, whereas Dean's puberty just continues to be incredibly traumatic. I mean, the metaphor is not very subtle. You know, yeah. this foreign substance enters his penis and, like, <laughs> so drives awful. him crazy and almost kills him. Like, it could be, uh, you know, a 1950s, like, you know, uh, uh, reefer madness kind of uh, PSA, but just sort of like anti-masturbation, you know. Instead mm. of don't go blind, it's, you know, nanobots will invade your body and take you over. Um, and then, uh, you know, oh, and also, you know, like Rusty Venture, there's this whole thing about, like, him getting accidentally exposed. Because, uh, like, Rusty um, had a very traumatic 16th birthday, uh, that he told Hank about, but it has not told Dean about. Um, you know, and Dean unfortunately learns that, uh, you know, having two-way cameras is not a good idea for bathroom mirrors. No, that's just that's just a bad idea. Now, another interesting uh, kind of uh, entry in this theme is that while uh, the copycat initially seems like just a uh, 60s rat pack douchebag. He's secretly more dangerous than that, uh, as we see. He basically seduces the monarch. Um, and you know, we've never in the show like explicitly talked about the monarch being bisexual, but they've never explicitly ruled that out either. And we do know from previous seasons that you know the monarch and uh, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch swing. They have threesomes. There's no reason why that couldn't be a threesome that involved the Monarch sleeping with guys as well as Dr. Mrs. the Monarch. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go against type, though, and say that while we don't have any reason to think that he wouldn't be necessarily bi, like, I also don't really think there's a ton of textual evidence that he would be, regardless of whether or not they're swingers. I, you know, I think that the monarch is very susceptible to uh, praise and is really easy to emotionally manipulate. Um, I think that Dr. Mrs. The Monarch knows what it's like when a guy is just trying to make a play on you and she smells copycat shit a mile away. Whereas like if with the monarch, if you're like, if you suck up to his ego, he was, he will, he will go for whatever you're saying. Yeah. Um, But it's not just that because like he, he starts talking pretty explicitly that like, he thinks copycat is a really attractive dude and looks like, you know, that he's got, you know, a great body and that he looks really good in the monarch's costume and looks really good in these suits. So like, you know, 
he's he's kind of into this, not just for the ego thing, I think. Hmm. Time will tell. Indeed. Um, so the next theme that I want to talk about is uh, super science, one of my favorite topics, uh, you know, sort of running themes of uh, the Venture Brothers, this whole sort of exploration of uh, retrofuturism and sort of, uh, you know, both as kind of uh, optimism for the future, but also as this kind of nostalgia and interrogating that a little bit. Um, and in this episode, you know, we get pretty explicitly that Rusty is starting to fall into his old habits of just mining the path mm-hmm. as opposed to forging his own path. Whereas, you know, to give Billy Quinn's boy credit, like, you know, he's got real integrity as a scientist. He wants to make new stuff. He wants yeah. to make a name for himself. I really feel like you see a lot here. Like, I think that there's a lot in the past episodes of Billy Quizboy really wants to strike out and like do something radical. And he's like really writing to shut, to shake things up. He's a character who I, I, I hope he has a story arc that does that justice this season. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, so, you know, the biobots are kind of an interesting moment. They're like the place where um, kind of the the futurism and Silicon Valley that we saw in conflict in previous uh, uh, episodes is kind of coinciding because, you know, if you look today, there is a lot of like Silicon Valley venture capital going into nanotechnology, biotechnology, you know, a lot of the, like, Google money is going into, you know, longevity science, and, you know, they, they're they nerds who want to make science fiction real. Yeah. Um, I mean, isn't there, their whole idea is, like, there's a whole fear about gray goo, which is, like, nanobot machine mass that would somehow yeah. destroy the world? Question so mark? The idea of, so the idea of gray goo is basically uh, if you – if there's like a virus or a malfunction within the the nanobots that they'll just start disassembling matter um, indiscriminately as opposed to discriminately and turn the entire world into gray goo uh, and kill us all. So that's kind of the, uh, that's kind of the, the nanotechnology apocalypse. Interestingly, uh, one of my uh, grad school colleagues, uh, Dr. Cassandra Engeman uh, actually looked at uh, issues of, of uh, occupational uh, safety and health in nanotechnology, and actually the, the bigger problem is basically that most uh, nano um, materials are like souped up asbestos in terms of their effect on uh, lungs. Uh, and it's sort of a big, uh, you know, unregulated industry. Hmm. Uh, so, moving on to sort of the next big thing that they raise is this ethical question about, like, should you use nanobots to, I mean, it's, it's essentially a kind of eugenics by the free market, right? It's a little bit like Gattaca, except that you're rewriting someone's genetic code on the fly. So, what do you think? I, I think that that's all in there, yeah. Uh, you know, which I mean, I have to admit, I feel a little bit ambivalent about because, you know, if if someone came along and said, uh, you know, we can put these nanobots in you and 
remove any, say, uh, you know, tendency towards cancer or, uh, you know, your eyes being farsighted or, what, you know, make you six feet tall or whatever, um, you know, I'm pretty cool with that. I think, you know, uh-huh. for me, the major kind of ethical issue is should the free market be deciding what happens? And also the privacy security requirements around the programming of them. Right. And here we sort of see the, you know, the privacy security issues getting kicked into high gear because, you know, idiots are playing video games with your internal organs, not knowing what they're doing and like shutting your heart off. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the larger thing that I'm kind of, and, and this is one of the things that I wanted to talk about that I wasn't so thrilled about this episode is, um, you know, are these changes in Dean going to stick? Like, will, D- will Dean ha- be a nanobotted character? Well, I mean, I mean he you know, pisses he, them out. Yeah, he pisses them out. But, like, does he keep the super strength? Does he still know Babylonian? Oh, my God. That would be, if we want him, we kind of want him to be Peter Parker, so I hope so. But, you know, on the other hand, like, one of the things that they talk about in, in the show, uh, and we'll discuss this, well, might as well discuss this now, but, like, mm-hmm. Hank starts the episode asking uh, Brock if he can use anabolic steroids to improve his physical development. And Brock shuts him down and says, that's really bad. Those things never end well. And what yeah. I'm worried about is this sort of, you know, super science essentially as like a shortcut around personal development. Development, right. And, you know, Dean's been doing such a good job of like trying to, uh, you know, trying to develop himself organically, you know, and, and become, try to become a better person through his own merits. I'm a little worried about the fact that like he may have gotten into college because Dr. Venture upgraded his brain. His brain, yeah. Without him knowing. I mean, it's it's complicated because, like, the thing is, like, he has so many disadvantages and advantages as a person. Um, yeah. You know, so it's sort of hard to say, like, I mean, I do think that he deserves to go to college and should be able to go to college. Uh, I also think that the SATs need to die in a fire. Um, yeah. So... But I do want, yeah, I mean, I want his knowledge to be his. But all the knowledge he's had all of his time growing up has been brainwashed to knowledge that was given to him in a learning bed. So That is a good point. I mean, you know, I mean, speaking of this whole sort of theme of family and legacy, it's like how far could Dean ever really, you know, how far do any of us parents, right? You know, even mm-hmm. if it's, you know, even if it's not, uh, you know, uh, nanobots like rewiring our brains, it's our parents who, you know, on a fundamental level decide, you know, how our cognitive development is going to work from, you know, do they talk to us as children, right? You know, like the whole feral child thing all the way Mm -hmm. through, like, you know, class privilege dictating access to all kinds of cultural capital and educational resources. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm worrying too much about this. Um, I think ultimately, I mean, a big question is just what is Dean going to do with this and how is he going to treat it? Uh, You know, is he going to have that early, uh, phase of being, you know, asshole Spider-Man before he learns that with great power comes great, <laughs> responsibility. great responsibility. That would be fascinating. I, I'm up for any of it, you know. Yeah. Um, so the next theme I want to talk about is this ongoing one that seems very powerful this season, family and legacy. Uh, so as we talked about before, like the monarch's family legacy seems to be this giant time bomb just waiting to go off. Mm-hmm. 
Um, anything more on that, or have we pretty much sort of said? Well, you you wrote in your notes about this episode a theory about what might happen in the future, which I think is a great one. Yeah, that you know, I think that what might happen is that basically the monarch takes up the mantle of the blue morpho, and that's the ultimate like catalyst for uh, his breakup with Doctor Mrs. The Monarch. Or that there might be, and here's another thing, because like I really like the Monarch and Doctor Mrs. The Monarch as a couple. I like they're they're awesome, um, despite that that they're you know having issues right now. Uh, is that I was wondering if they're going to do this kind of uh, technical love triangle uh, where you know Doctor Mrs. The Monarch kind of gets into the Blue Morpho as being a little bit more you know. <sighs> proactive and dangerous than the monarch who kind of has like a, a stay at home kind of, you know, slacker mentality. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and God, there's a whole superhero tradition of, of technical love triangles going all the way back to, you know, Superman and Lois Lane. Yes. As well as Gem and the holograms with regards to Gem versus Jerrica and Rio. I'm sure we can all relate to that. Well, those of us who avoided seeing the movie, there's no movie. I don't know what you're talking about. There's only a 1980s cartoon and an excellent comic book series by Sophie Campbell and Jenna, uh, and, uh, Jenna Thompson. Those are the only, Kelly Thompson, those are the only things with Joe and the Hologram in the world. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing is that, you know, Dean's college essay, where she's talking about his father dragging him all over the world and almost getting him killed, and, you know, that he feels like his father is, you know, trying to dictate his life and so on and so forth really sounds a lot like what Rusty used to say about his dad, Jonas Venture. And, you know, this is a whole legacy that the show has been doing for many years now about this kind of, you know, the way that these cycles repeat themselves. And I mm-hmm. it suggests that there's a need for an intervention because, you know, uh, I'm not sure whether it was last season or the season before that, but uh, when Hank kidnapped his own dad in any way but Zeus, like, the two of them had a heart-to-heart about how Rusty Venture sees his two children because, you know, it, it's no secret that Dean is the favorite um, because, you know, he is more like Rusty. Um, but, you know, he sees Hank as, you know, as, as someone who, like, fights being uh, a super hero uh, or, you know, super-powered protagonist, however you want to say it. Uh but, like, Dean's never really had that moment with his dad. Like, you know, when Dean was in his emo phase, right, he had that moment, that shared moment about, you know, the wonders of prog rock as, like, the gateway to super science. Yeah. But it never worked that way for me, incidentally. <laughs> I'm well, still really you know, bad at science. Say, I will but say I'm really good I at like, prog rock. Yeah, I will say I like the Court of the Crimson King, and I don't know from science. Um, so, you know, I think there's a need for, for, for Dean and Rusty to like talk and actually communicate about how they see their, their mutual positions and, you know, what do they want, um, for their relationship. The final thing, and I kind of, I hesitated to, to say this is, um, you know, I got a kind of creepy dad vibe from Wide Whale. Am I just, like, seeing stuff that isn't there? 
Well, I mean, what kind of report? I mean, what kind of creepy? I guess I'm not really sure what you mean by that. Well, like, does he seem like a dick? Yes. Like, is he sending people to spawn his daughter all the time? Yes. That's very normal, and it's also stupid. And like, people should stop doing it because it's actually really sexist. Yeah, there was just there was a scene where like she was mentioning that she's a. It's it's when he stops her from drinking the champagne, and he like immediately goes to like you remember when you were young, what you love to do, and like he's caressing her face and I just like I don't know something instinctively just was like yeah that's not right but I like I may be seeing you know I mean look you know the Venture Brothers is not a show that is ever subtle about you know molestation so you know I may be seeing stuff that just isn't there yeah I didn't I didn't read it I didn't read it that way he just needs to like let her date who she wants yeah Uh, and then finally uh, you know Let's talk about the topic of failure, which, you know, without which there would not be a Venture Brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the the most obvious thing is that, like, Rusty is once again, like, falling into his old habits of trying to live by mining the past versus creating something new on his own. Like, you know, back before J.J. existed, you know, he had basically run Venture Industries into the ground and was making a living by just, you know, selling his dad's inventions and pocketing the cash, um, you know. And that's not a very healthy way of living. But the funny thing about that, you know, I've always thought is that, you know, when we think about the Venture Brothers as a show, the alchemy that it's making is that it takes, it mines from the past, right? Literally, it's referencing, you know, all kinds of pop culture history, but it's also creating something new with it. Um, and it's sort of interesting that Rusty seems unable to do that. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we already talked about this. The you know, I'm worried about the possibility that the symbiotes might shortcut Dean's personal development. Uh, but we already covered that. Um, I wish a symbiote would shortcut my personal development. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, I I would like that too. Um, it's just I, I like, haven't grown up though. It's different. Kids stay off symbiotes. Yeah, you, you make sure you're old enough to to know how to you know use them responsibly. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, finally, you know, let's talk about the potential failure of the marriage of Doctor Mrs. The Monarch and the Monarch. Yeah, I think this is going to be a really hard season for them. I don't think they're going to split because the show is so invested in them, but I do think they're going to have a really rough season. Yeah, you know, and I think it it might be one of those cases in which conflict is ultimately healthy. Sure. In the sense that, like, you know, for a couple seasons now, you know, they've been together and, you know, there being clear problems, right, you know, where – you know, for example, you know, the, the the episode where they got, where the guild approved their marriage, that was a real moment for them of, like, working together and seeing one another as equals and having a really good working relationship. And since then, you know, we've definitely seen the monarch being, you know, just ultimately not comfortable with his situation. He didn't like living in Phantom Limb's old house in the supervillain gated community, He's not very comfortable in the social world of supervillainy. Uh, you know, he certainly, you know, man, does he have issues with uh, Dr. and Mrs. the Monarch, you know, being, 
you know, much more important than him within the guild and that the guild doesn't take him seriously. So I think that's something that they like they need to actually have a fight about instead of just, you know, passive aggression and kind of bottling everything up inside. Yep, I agree. I think we're just gonna be building for that. Uh so that's all I got. That's all I got. Okay. I guess this is so, all we've uh, got. Yeah, uh that's all there is. Um anyway, so Aww. Uh, so same time next week. Same time next, same Blue Morpho time, same Blue Morpho channel. Question awesome. mark. Great. Uh, so and guys, for those of you listening to Graphic Policy Radio, we'll be back on Monday at an early time at six p.m. Eastern because we'll be interviewing Kieran Gillen, calling in all the way from London, who will be talking oh with my us. God. I know, oh my God, ah, will be talking with us about phonogram and the wicked plus the divine and what it's like to be amazing if i wasn't teaching literally at that time and place i would be listening live oh thank you i'm very excited he's amazing well Uh, we'll talk with you all then till then where can we find you on social media well graphic policy radio is at graphicpolicy.com we're graphic policy on tumblr uh, I am Ilana Brooklyn, Ilana, E-L-A-N-A, Brooklyn at Tumblr. I am also Ilana underscore Brooklyn on Twitter because I am not as consistent as I should have been back when I created these handles like 10 years ago or whatever. Um, graphic Policy is at Graphic Policy on Twitter. What about you? Uh, I am at Stephen Atwell on Twitter. You can also find me at uh, Race for the Iron Throne where I write about Game of Thrones. And you can find me on Graphic Policy uh, doing a regular column called The People's History of the Marvel Universe, uh, which will have uh, a new column coming out uh, tomorrow afternoon. Cool. I like it. And it's a really good one, guys. It's really good. Oh, yeah. You're going to like it. Talk to you guys later. Good night. Bye.